Our New Testament reading comes to us from Galatians 6. See what large letters I make when I'm writing in my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh that try to compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Even the circumcised do not themselves obey the law, but they want you to be circumcised so that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but a new creation is everything. As for those who will follow this rule, peace be upon them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one make trouble for me, for I carry the marks of Jesus branded on my body. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak, otherwise the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and so the skins. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, o Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we, um, as we finish up thinking about this text in Galatians this morning, that you would enable us to know what would it mean for us to boast in the cross of Christ in the context of our own lives and how might we become a community that does that more fruitfully uh, uh, to Jesus's glory. So meet us in these words we pray in his name. Amen. So a few weeks ago I was listening to a lecture that a friend of mine, a guy named Greg Thompson, you've heard me talk about Greg before, he was formerly the pastor of Trinity Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, and he worked with a group called Thriving Cities Group, he actually helped start that and was the CEO of it for a while. But um, so, so Greg was giving a talk on the topic of innovation. Now, 
Innovation, right? We live in this moment of the entrepreneurial spirit. We like to imagine ourselves disrupting markets and stepping into spaces that other people aren't stepping into and uh, bringing our knowledge interest to bear on some problem in the world in some way. Uh, and very, very often we do these kinds of things with the hope of our own market success, right? There's a little bit of, uh, uh, a little bit of self involved in innovation sometimes. But so Greg was doing this talk on innovation. He was trying to think through it in the, in the context of what does Christianity have to offer? Uh, for, for innovators. If you imagine yourself or fancy yourself to be an innovator, and in some sense we all uh, sort of probably like to imagine ourselves that. Um, and, and so, so think about just the challenge of innovation just for a moment. So if you were to think about Philadelphia, um, th there are some problems here, right? I mean, you know, our city is not a perfect city, uh, and it doesn't take long to realize that. Uh, you can move from block to block, and you can realize something of that. And, you know, so what, what is it? So, so in other words, innovation becomes, if you begin to think about the way we actually live in the world in all different sectors of life in the world, it's not at all hard to imagine yourself longing for someone to innovate, right? Just a few moments ago, as we were singing these beautiful songs about uh, appealing to God for his peace. So what would it look like for someone to innovate peace, for someone to step into some, some broken space? So now, so innovation, while there's something incredibly important about and interesting even about taking our ideas that we come up with in our head and scaling them out into the world in some existing concrete manner, or while it's even interesting to think about uh, and even important to think about market success, one of the things Greg was arguing is that Christianity sets a very different endpoint for our innovation, our work, right, our vocation. And the endpoint is love, uh, love of neighbor, which presumes right, that we actually begin to get, become people that are near our neighbor, that we actually know them. We know what our neighbor needs in some sense. There's proximity in the way we live life with one another so that we might actually love neighbor. And it presumes that when we actually think about our own financial resources, if I want to invest in innovation or the project of peace, that I, um, I actually am willing to take the long look of investment in acts of love. And the moment you begin to frame innovation or vocation or work in terms of love it's as the aim, you begin to realize that something like the renewal of a city <clears throat> or the renewal of a neighborhood or the renewal of a community or the renewal of your own family, right? You begin to realize that renewal requires a lot more than just technical proficiency and intellectual and creative capacity, right? It actually requires moral acts of love that require certain kinds of persons, persons of virtue. And this is the challenge because we are, guess what? A gifted community, right? There are lots of resources in the room this morning. Uh, some of them are financial, some of them are intellectual. Some of you have all kinds of capacity, all kinds of connections. We are a resourced people. Our, our giftedness, our intellect, our creativity, our financial resources are profound. But one of the challenges, Greg was arguing, is that very often our resources outstep our virtue. In other words, we haven't actually become persons of virtue, that we haven't actually become persons that love the way Jesus loves. We don't know our neighbor. We don't love our neighbor. So what does it take to become that kind of person? It's a very fitting kind of thing to be thinking about 
on this Sunday of the year when we celebrate Christ the King. Because Jesus Christ has become king in our world by an act of God's grace that our own lives would be radically transformed. And this text that we read, uh, Paul's concluding words to the church in the Galatia region, right? These concluding words sort of anchor our imagination in, in Jesus as king, specifically in terms of his love for us. His dying love, his crucified love, his, his cruciform love, right? His willingness to live an act of just self-donation unto death itself, which automatically leads us to remember the whole story of Jesus, which is that God raised him up and exalted him and gave him the highest name, the name that is above all names. He's put him in place as king of new creation. And when we begin to think about our lives in relation to this Jesus, our leadership, our humanity, whatever, it, it, whatever form it's taking, whatever context we are living our lives in, is meant to be changed, transformed after the likeness of Jesus. These last verses situate us in the centrality of the cross of Christ, his dying and his rising love, as the way into new creation and as the way through which God is making all things new. And our lives are part of that. So just a few thoughts on these verses. First, this, boast in the cross of Christ. Verse 14, Paul says, May I never boast of anything except the cross of Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, what does it mean? in this context, to boast in something. To boast in something is simply to celebrate it as the center of your life or identity or purpose or maybe as the aim of your life. It's the thing you highlight. It's the thing you run to. It's the thing you, in, in conversation, you sort of, you push up to the top. You foreground. As the way you understand your identity, your purpose, your meaning, your calling, your vocation. Christ is a gift to our lives and our world of the sort that, um, that it isn't merely enough to add Jesus into our lives. We have to let him recenter our lives. You know, um, you know I, I, there's, there's a challenge of relating to Jesus. He's an interesting figure, right? <laughs> Sometimes we, we read things in the New Testament, and it's, it, you know, Jesus seems profoundly wise, you know? We, and he is, right? We read you know, something like the Sermon on the Mount, and we sort of we lean into Jesus as a teacher. Um, but the thing about teachers is you can just sort of add their wisdom to your life, right? You just, you just sort of collect as you go along, right? That's like... <clears throat> okay, I'm, I've, I've learned a little bit about the story of Jesus, and I'm going to just sort of, I'm going to add him on to the story of things that I know in life and the way I go about living life. But I'm not actually going to take the step of boasting in him, which would be to take the step of letting Jesus reorder the way I actually live life. That I begin to begin with Jesus as the very center or the very core of my own self-understanding. The way I think about my past, the way I think about my future, the way I live into the very present. Paul here says that he views himself essentially as a dead man, which is interesting, right? <laughs> uh, he views himself as a dead man, at least in regard to the way he once found value and worthiness and meaning in his life through the Jewish law. 
Essentially, he said, I'm rereading the Jewish law. I'm not, I'm not just letting it, I'm not tacking Jesus onto things. I'm rereading things in light of the core of who Jesus is and his greatness. Paul says, I start with this Christ, Christ crucified. I start with Christ crucified. I don't merely add Jesus to the catalog of my knowledge about God or anything else. I reimagine the past through my relationship with Jesus. Now, Paul's religious past, right, was that of a Jew. He was advanced in Judaism, he tells us, right? And he reimagines that place of his life and the role that Judaistic law and all of his understanding of it had in his life. He's let Jesus Christ become a new way of sort of sorting that out. He's not simply adding Jesus to that. And also, all of the other personal stories that would have made up his life He's rethinking those things through Jesus. And even here in the present moment, what does it mean for me to be a human being now? It means to celebrate the cross of Christ. And what does it mean for my future? It means that the future that God has given Jesus is the future that is my future. And so one of the things it means to be a Christian is that you and I are just always in this this battle of reimagining our lives, retelling our story, in terms of boasting in the cross of Christ. And if it's not that, we're merely adding Jesus to our lives. We're not changing much. We're not reordering our lives. We're not shuffling the deck. We're not, we're not sort of getting, you know, we're not sort of moving into a space of newness that he desires for us. We're actually simply layering Jesus into stuff that we already have and know. In Philippians, Paul concludes his reading of the story of Jesus' dying love, Christ crucified, with his reference in chapter 2 that God raised him up and exalted him and gave him the highest name that is above all names, and that one day every knee will bend to the reality of all that God has done in Jesus. In other words, we'll all recognize that his story is real. That he really is God's exalted king and that God really is making all things new through Jesus. And what Paul is saying here in this moment in Galatians is that, right, I seek to live that way now. I bend my knee now. I don't bend it consistently. We confess our sins all the time, right, together. But we, we, we seek to constantly be a community and individuals who are bending our knee to the story and the truthfulness of who Jesus is. And living in terms of of his world, his new creation, rather than the terms of our broken world that's formed and shaped us in so many ways, right? So the second thing, new creation. Verse 15, Paul says, for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but a new creation is everything. So what Paul is doing here, as he gets to the very end of the letter, is he just circles back to this argument that he's just been having with the Galatian church, that, that, um, that, that right now, you know, God, that new creation is everything. And so the way we used to carve up the world into the circumcised and the uncircumcised, the Jews and the Gentiles, it's no longer adequate because of the greatness of who Jesus is. The gift of Christ our King is so great that God has even disrupted the old religious division of the world along national religious identification with God's people, the nation of Israel. If you want to know how you relate to God, it's no longer by being centered in Israel and the, the, the you know, participation in, in its laws and, and, and circumcision, for example, would be a marker of your participation in that reality or centering in that space of reality. But God has sort of blown up the system. 
He has disrupted the market. And not just the market within Judaism. He has disrupted the market of the entire world. Because the Gentiles also are disrupted. Right? The gift of Christ our King is so great that the Gentiles are not left to themselves in darkness forever. The kingdom of God is no mere kingdom of tolerance and putting up with the differences between us. Like, when you think about the dialogue in, in our country, right, it happens, or even globally, about our need for peace. So often our need for peace sort of degenerates to just this mere rhetoric of tolerance that, you know, look, we, we're not going to solve our differences, so we just need to learn to sort of accept them. And let's just be tolerant of one another. So we sort of move into this least common denominator way of relating to one another. But no, that's not the kind of peace and unity that God is bringing into the community of the church. He's pulling Jew and Gentile together to the family table. And it requires something of everyone. It requires a radical kind of conversion in which both Jew and Gentile alike recenter their lives in boasting in the cross of Christ. That we bend our knee to the reality of who Jesus is. In the new creation, in new creation, as persons and tribes and cultures throughout the world bend their knee to the greatness of Jesus, boasting in the cross, that's the family God is pulling together. So here's the thing. If you are a person that is in fellowship or that is in communion, right, you relate to this Jesus, you connect with this Jesus, you are the Israel of God. That's what Paul says. You are the Israel of God. God has so radically disrupted the way everyone lived life in that moment through the story of Jesus crucified and risen and exalted. You're part of the new creation. You're ordered and empowered by the spirit of God's own self. And he leads us, right, to become persons of virtue, right? That, right, planted in the spirit. What do we do? We yield the fruits of the spirit, right? That's what Paul has told us. And we read that just a few weeks ago. In other words, there's some transformation, not just of sort of, hey, we get to gather, but I change and you change as we gather. And we begin to actually love one another in the same pattern of Jesus' love, cruciform love. A third, waiting, seeking Christ's peace. Verse 16, as for those who will follow this rule, peace be upon them and mercy upon the Israel of God. Just think about this as we finish up. From week to week as we've gone through, particularly these last few weeks as we've sort of moved through chapter 5 and chapter 6, We've acknowledged that, that we don't experience the kind of peace and unity that God promises just automatically, right? That we experience this promise of peace on the story of Christ in the context of earthly struggle, right? We struggle. Do you struggle? I struggle. You struggle. A few moments ago, we were confessing our sins, and Chris led us in remembering that, guess what? We struggled this week. And some of us struggle poorly, right? All of us struggle poorly. And we, we uh, instead of living a life that's anchored or planted in the Spirit, and so finding ourselves experiencing the fruit of the Spirit, we actually plant it in the flesh, right? We, which means simply this, that we reverted back 
into that old and broken way of living our human lives. We reverted back to that broken way of living our human lives. We got caught up in the world that Paul has already said, I'm crucified to. <laughs> and we just replicated the pattern one more time, multiple times this week. What did that look like for you? As you thought about that confession of sin this morning, how do you understand the struggle that's playing out in your life and my life and our life together? As we look on the stage of leadership in our world or we look to the stage of American politics, we look to the current stories, we read current stories of sexual harassment and abuse that are surfacing week after week after week, we recognize, right, that this broken way of being human is just alive and well in our world. And maybe you bump into that and you feel a little bit of you feel a little bit cynical. Stacy and I were walking in Center City on, on Friday and just processing life together. It was our day after, you know, post, okay, we hit pause and we said some things we could be thankful for. Now let's gripe. You know, it was that moment. <laughs> Black Friday. <laughs> so there we are walking through Center City and we're just sort of talking about things that sort of grieve us in life and, and things that are hard for us in life and places where we sense the struggle in our own lives and our own family and our own marriage and our own in, in the church or in our world or things that discourage us about the world. And it's just so easy in those moments to just sort of say, how do you avoid cynicism, right? I mean, do you struggle with that? Like, how do you avoid becoming a cynical person? Because there's a lot of brokenness in our world. The struggle is just so very palpable. I found myself as we were singing that beautiful song, O Lamb of God, you know, take away the sin of the world, bring us peace, grant us peace. Just crying out that God would indeed grant us his peace. And here as Paul closes this letter down, he says, those of you that are struggling to live under this rule, may God grant you that peace. May he grant you peace in that struggle. Um, this rule... Is Paul talking about? The rule is just quite simply a life that is struggling to be ordered by the crucified Christ. That you let the story of who Jesus is become the core of your identity, of your relationships, the way you think about your past, places where you feel like a victim, places where you feel like you're a success. So the things that might give you pride the things that might lead you to despair or cynicism. You think through, what does the story of who Jesus is mean for me in those spaces of life? How does he raise me up so that I am a person of hope in the moment and I don't live like a victim to my hurts and my suffering and my past? And it means very simply boasting in Christ, right? And so dying to that world that is broken in some very real way and then re-aiming or ordering our lives and our affections toward new creation. That we actually become a people who are caught up in God's vision for our world and our lives. And his vision for our world and our lives is that you and I are little kings and little queens all over the place. And we take up our relationships, and we take up our vocation, whatever that vocation is. Whether you're a lawyer, or you're a doctor, or a teacher, or an administrator, or you're a street worker, whatever it is that you are, that you take up these sort of vocations in a way that 
is ordered by Christ crucified. That means some things need to change about the way you think about work. Because Christ is crucified. And you are dead to a broken way of living with work. You don't use it to complete yourself and find value and worth in the world. You don't use it as a way of securing your future. You know that God has secured your future, and so you live with your work very differently. To go back to Greg's earlier comment, you become a person of love, and your work becomes a way through which you love the world. But our vocations aren't limited to our work, right? My vocation is the vocation of being a husband and a father and a son and a friend. And so guess what? You have similar diversity in your own vocations of life. We don't have just one uniform duty or responsibility in life. We have multiple spaces in which we are called to, to act, to take up agency. And the question is, how will you do that? Will you replicate the patterns of human selfishness and brokenness in the world? Will you be consumed with the things that we're consumed about in the world with competitiveness and competition and critique and condemnation? Will that cycle through your life and all of those spaces of your humanity? Or will Christ crucified change the way you live as a friend or change the way you live as a husband or a wife or the way you live with gender or sexuality or the way you live with some other feature of your humanity, right? We are all sort of trying to find some tribal identity. But will you let Jesus, Christ crucified and risen, exalted king, will you let him reshape the way you live life in all of the ordinary spaces of being a human being? We are called to pursue God's peace now. And we do this in trust that God is with us and that the one that raised Jesus from the grave and gave him the highest name that is above all names will with him raise us up and has secured our future in him so that we might live in the present moment as sons and daughters of God who loves us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we uh, continue to think on these texts, these words of scripture, that we would know what change might look like for us today and tomorrow, just this week. That we would have some new glimpse of what it might mean for us to back off of cynicism or fear or anxiety and instead celebrate the exalted Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. And so become persons that enter our world shaped by his love and so loving. Meet us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.